Just to recap on what the US uh, soccer lawyers uh, said in court as part of this gender discrimination lawsuit on Monday. The women do not perform equal work requiring equal skill and effort to the men because the overall soccer playing ability required to compete at the senior men's level is materially influenced by the level of certain physical attributes such as speed and strength. An appalling misstep from the US soccer lawyers. The U.S. Soccer Federation is in a firestorm, thanks to an own goal by their lawyers in their ongoing dispute with the U.S. women's national team over gender discrimination. Today, what's really being argued in this complicated case? And whether the reigning World Cup champions could be on the verge of a major victory for equal pay? I'm Mina Kimes. It's Thursday, March 19th. This is ESPN Daily, presented by ADT. Hi, Julie. Hi, Mina. Julie Foudy is a soccer commentator for ESPN and was a member of the U.S. Women's National Team from 1987 to 2004. She also hosts the podcast Laughter Permitted. So, Julie, it's been a chaotic few days, and I use the word chaotic relatively now, uh, for American soccer. Late last week, the president of the U.S. Soccer Federation, Carlos Cordero, resigned. What was the chain of events that brought that about? We need a couple days and a lot of wine for that, Mina, actually. <laughs> I think we have that, actually, right now. <laughs> we do. It, uh, it all started, obviously, with the lawsuit that the women filed last March for gender discrimination. And then there was a brief that really triggered this avalanche uh, that was released last week. Their central argument was women are inherently inferior to men. This from the USSF defense, quote, the job of a men's national team player requires a higher level of skill based on speed and strength than does the job of a women's national team player. The response was immediate. A federation saying that biological science is the reason why men should make more money than the women? You've got to be kidding me. Arrogance and ignorance here is outstanding. It's mind-blowing. These women are the best at what they do mm. in the world. In the world. How? How can they not be compensated as such? What then transpired was we were in the middle of our coverage of the She Believes Cup, which is an annual tournament that the women play in. It was their last game of the tournament. And my play-by-play guy actually looks at me, Sebastian Salazar, points to his phone and puts his finger up like, hold on, I need to read something. Julie, I have uh, just been handed a statement from USSF President Carlos Cordero. And he proceeds to read this apology on air from Carlos Cordero. I sincerely apologize for the offense and pain caused by language in this week's court filing, which did not reflect the values of our federation or our tremendous admiration of our women's national team. Cordero saying, I hadn't properly read the brief. I apologize for what's in there. We're firing our legal team and hiring Latham and Watkins. I literally had to take about a five second pause and gather myself because my head was about to implode. These players are getting deposed all the time. 
They're being asked questions like, you lose to 15-year-olds, though, right? So you're inferior, right? So you know this is happening. You have to know that the players are feeling it as well. No one was buying it. And to give us the statement on air, I thought was a terrible idea. And for me to react to it. What I don't get is how you ever get to this position where you're okay with letting your legal team run all these depositions in that manner and making that the central tentpole of your argument. And the very next day, Carlos Cordero resigned as president. Julie, why do you think the backlash resulted so quickly in Cordero's resignation? I think the sponsors helped. I think they saw the reaction from uh, some of their biggest partners, Coca-Cola, Deloitte, Volkswagen. The statements they put out were words like, we're disgusted by this. We would never associate with an organization that thinks this way, yet we stand by the women. If you're U.S. soccer, they feel like they're on the brink of something in, in, in a very negative way. And so they knew they had to do something quickly. Obviously, this moment puts the players in a bit of a weird spot where, in the midst of all this, they're playing an event wearing the shield for U.S. soccer who's actively trying to undercut their standing as highly skilled athletes. How did they react? I honestly was so proud of how they handled it. The U.S. and Japan have met on the world soccer's biggest stage, and today they meet with the 2020 She Believes Cup title on the line. We had been given a heads up that they were going to wear their jerseys inside out, the, the warm-up jerseys. The U.S. women wearing their warm-up uniforms inside out. We are told this is in response to the latest legal filings by the U.S. Soccer Federation. Usually they take that photo with just the starting 11 before you start a game and you're in your jerseys. They kept their warm-up jerseys on and they had the whole team stand in solidarity. They knew they had to play, but they also wanted it to be clear, like, this is not okay. We don't stand for what their argument they're making. As they always have, the U.S. women's national team proved their worth on the field, 3-1 to one over Japan. They are She Believes Cup champions. We had Megan Rapino on air right after, and as we've seen all over social media, her response was spot on. Like, I want every little girl to know that you're not lesser than a boy. To every girl out there, to every boy out there who watches this team, who wants to be on this team or just wants to live their dream out, you are not lesser just because you are a girl. You are not better just because you're a boy. We are all created equal and should all have the equal opportunity to go out and pursue our dreams. And for us, that means playing on the soccer field. So everything that was in that argument is just not true. Don't ever believe that. So, Julie, this all goes back to last year when the U.S. women initially filed their lawsuit against U.S. soccer, accusing them of gender discrimination. Why did they file it in the first place? It all goes back to an EEOC complaint that they filed. Five members of the U.S. women's soccer team announced Thursday they have filed a wage discrimination action with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission on behalf of the entire team against the U.S. Soccer Federation. That filing, which they had never got anywhere on, and they felt like it was stagnant, U.S. soccer wasn't coming to the table, and there was a timeline. My understanding is there was a timeline on that in which they either had to decide to drop this EEOC complaint for equal pay 
or their option was to sue the Federation. They decided, we're not going to let this die. This group has announced that they are suing U.S. Soccer Federation for gender discrimination, a lawsuit saying that they deserve not just to be paid equally as the men, but where and how often they play, their medical treatment, and their coaching. And that was only three months, mind you, before they were marching off to go to the Women's World Cup with now (laughs) their employer, who they're now suing. Julie, as... News came out about the suit. What emerged as the key points of contention? The argument U.S. soccer kept giving, for example, was, well, look at look at in the last five years, you know, we're paying the women more in some cases than the men. And the women would come back and say, yeah, that's because we won a World Cup. We've won the Olympics. We've won every single tournament. If we don't win, we're not near to where what the men are making. And so their argument was, it shouldn't be that we have to win everything to even be close to getting what the men make. I think the suit is difficult for some to understand because the U.S. women and the men's teams have different pay structures. Is it possible to compare them? Yeah, and it, this is, and not to get into the weeds, but it is. Let's get into the weeds. <laughs> it does get, <laughs> let's get into the weeds. Okay, it gets super convoluted in, in, in a sense. So when going back to my time playing, most of the money, if you go back to that time, most of the money that we earned came from the U.S. national team because there was no professional clubs that could pay to a level that would actually make it a viable employment opportunity. (laughs) And so for the men, contrast that, most of their money came from these professional clubs they were paying for. They were making a lot of money outside the national team. And as women, we said, hey, we don't have the security of a club. We would like to have guaranteed contracts, meaning injury protection, pregnancy leave protection, and nanny support, health insurance, all these things that perhaps the men were getting from the club teams. And so the contracts in which the women play under right now are very different from the men. So given that the women sort of opted for this more reliable source of income, how do you compare them, right? Because they're arguing they're being discriminated against. Is it sort of possible to draw a comparison between the two teams? The women's approach is they've tried to take the model if they were to win under the men's model, what that payment would look like, right? And especially given the FIFA money, what that would look like with the FIFA money. And that's that's really the big argument too, the big difference. So for example, if the men win a World Cup, FIFA pays that federation $38 million. Our women won the World Cup and they got $2 million because FIFA says, well, the women's tournament doesn't make as much as the men. True. The women's tournament doesn't draw as much as the men. True. And so the market's not there. We're not going to pay that. The women have always argued, yeah, but You've never invested in the women's market. You've never invested in women's teams development. So you haven't built the market up. So it sounds like U.S. soccer is saying, look, we pay the men a lot or hypothetically would if they made it um, because the marketplace for men's soccer in the world, right? The World Cup payouts, it's huge. And the, the women seem to be countering, sure, But the fact that it's huge is a product of your lack of investment, and perhaps you could compensate for that uh, to some degree. Am I wrong? Correct. Yeah, that is correct. And the interesting thing is, 
Is they always used to say in the past, they being U.S. soccer, would say, yeah, but you don't bring in as much revenue. You don't bring in as much people. You don't bring in the sponsorship money. And maybe that was true 10 years ago. But now what you're seeing is the women are the most visible. The women are the most successful. And so the women, you could argue, are bringing in more sponsorship money. They're bringing in if not more, at least equal gate revenue. And so they're actually the attraction now versus the men. And so the women are saying, wait a second, right? See what's happened when you've invested in the market? Look what's happened to this women's team and we're successful and we're winning. Coming up, how does U.S. soccer move forward from here? So the most offensive part of U.S. soccer's response or the part that elicited the most backlash, as you mentioned, was this argument that the women weren't as skilled as men, that the women couldn't even beat the men. What is your reaction to hearing that? It's like saying to my kid, right, I have a daughter who's 13 and a son who's 11, that I value my son playing on the national team more than I value you if you make the national team. You've both worked equally as hard, but I'm sorry, honey. I'm going to value Declan's job more than I value yours. It's so offensive on so many levels. It seems to me if you follow that line of thinking, women's physical labor will never be equal, right? Because they're couching value in biological difference. Yeah. What are we saying to our young girls? There's a reason that they're separated. We get that. Like women play women and men play men. And yes, there are biological differences, but does that mean that what the women do and how they win and the World Cups they win are less important? Is that what we want to teach our kids growing up? I, I mean, that argument in so many ways It drives me crazy. Mina, don't get me going on this. I start to get flushed. Julia, you're talking about sort of this idea that U.S. soccer, especially given the success of the women's team, given the interest uh, and revenue and marketability, could sort of correct some of the discrepancies that result from FIFA's investment. But what about FIFA in all of this, right? Like, are there any lawsuits asking them, I suppose, to rebalance a bit and invest in the women's game? Well, I know there have been ongoing discussions with Gianni Infantino, who's the president of FIFA, with actually players on the U.S. women's team, with them trying to put pressure on him to say, what are you doing about this? If you want your legacy to be around the women's game and growing the women's game, as he said, then how are we fixing this? One of the greatest press conferences I've ever seen is right before the final at a FIFA press conference when asked about the pay disparity. Megan Rapino, no surprise there. I mean, she proceeds to just kill FIFA with a smile on her face the way she can uh, and say they have to be better. If you really care about each game in the same way, are you letting the gap grow? The resources are there. It's all there. It's just a matter of wanting to do it and caring enough about it to make it happen. And so when people say, but FIFA still pays differently, I think the argument you could make, and one I have made 
is you put it all into one pot, you do a revenue share model like we see with professional leagues, and you do an equal split. When the men do well, the women do well. And when the women do well, the men do well. And you're all in this together and you share your pot equally. You split it as you want. And there's no fighting about it. We're actually in it together. So what has U.S. soccer done since Cordero stepped down? Immediately, the vice president, Cindy Parlo Cohn, who is actually a player who I played with for many years, she was the vice president, and now she becomes acting president. And she's essentially doing the job of about five people, right? And has a mess to unpack. What also happened is... There was another filing, and they got rid of the entire inherently inferior defense, which they made in that 2,600-page filing. And essentially, U.S. soccer is making the argument in this recent filing that, one, women have been paid more total compensation in the past five years, and that the women negotiated how they were paid, and that they signed that CBA. What they don't mention is that those five years, the women in that period won two World Cups and the men didn't even qualify for a World Cup, right? Cindy also made a statement that, look, I'm a player. I get this. I know how important this is. And we have to grow the game together to move forward. So we'll see. We'll see where we land with all of this. The trial is still set for May 5th, I think, with all that's happening in the world. The idea of having a trial on May 5th is probably less likely to happen, and it could be delayed, of course. Julie, this case has drawn attention beyond just the soccer world. Please, pay them 500000 per player. Snoop Dogg says so. The Women's and the Men's Players Association support the U.S. women's claims. Pay discrepancy is ludicrous. Please, please, please support her and her teammates because this isn't over yet. It's not resolved. Why do you think it's grabbed people? It's grabbed people because these women have been courageous enough to step up and stand up and shout it out and say, this is wrong. Mia Hamm and I have had this discussion. Would we have three months before a World Cup put that flag down and said, we're going to sue you, U.S. soccer, for equal pay, and yeah, and we're going to still go to the World Cup together and win it all. We would have, back in our day, I think, said, "Mm, let's wait and we'll do it after the World Cup. And we would have put that flag down, but it would have been later. And we wouldn't have created the noise around it and the attention around it that it needed and it deserved. And then knowing as they go to that World Cup, they had to back that up. They couldn't go to the World Cup and then the narrative be, eh, and then they lost. Yeah. That was a pressure they knew was going to be there, and they welcomed it. They're locked in on we're going to be the best team in the world come hell or high water, and we're going to do it while suing your asses as well. So get used to it. The U.S. women just won the World Cup. Obviously, they have been one of the most dominant teams in American sports, period. How do you think this lawsuit factors into their legacy? When they look at World Cups and Olympics, they say, yeah, we want to win. 
but this is what we want to be known for, that we had the courage to stand up and say, do what's right. There's so many people globally who have been inspired by it outside of sports as well for their courageousness to step up. So it's absolutely their biggest legacy. Thanks so much, Julie. Thanks, Mina. Coming up, two hockey teams could have made history. Now they won't get the chance. Here's another story I want you to know. As the coronavirus pandemic continues to keep the sports world on hold, we're still waiting to find out whether leagues like the NBA, NHL, and MLB will either resume or begin playing. But some college athletes will never have the opportunity to complete their seasons. It's uniquely unfortunate for both ice hockey teams at Cornell, where, as our Emily Kaplan documented in a piece that ran yesterday on ESPN.com, both the men's and women's teams were ranked number one going into their respective postseasons. The women's team has never won a championship, and the men's team hadn't won a title in 50 years leading some to hope for a rare double win. But now, neither will get the chance as the NCAA has canceled its schedule of events. While the NCAA decides on the possibility of extending eligibility to some of these players, college athletes might now have to decide if it's worth it to return for an extra year. The Cornell women's team has six seniors on their roster, and the men's team has three. Their coach, Mike Schaefer, told Kaplan that he thought it was unlikely some of these kids would come back and pay for another chance that they'd want to go on and begin their adult lives. He and the other coaches have been forced to finish out their seasons remotely, conducting exit interviews over video conference. Scouting and showcases have also been put on hold, making it hard for them to know what their rosters next season will look like. Of course, everybody involved acknowledges the importance of prioritizing public health right now. And some of these players will hopefully get another crack at a championship. But others won't get that shot. And as they move on, hopefully, to a world that's achieved some semblance of normalcy, they'll have to settle for what might have been. I'm Mina Kimes, and this has been ESPN Daily. I'll talk to you tomorrow.